I want to start with a Bible verse. All right. Uh, Romans chapter 12. It starts with uh, in verse 9. I'm just going to read a paragraph. It says, Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be lazy in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Serve Lloyd. Serve Lloyd. I think about Dumb and Dumber a lot. All right, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in trials, be constant in prayer, and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. One of the verses in there, uh, it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, And the message version says, seek to play second fiddle, meaning whenever you can and whenever you have the spotlight, use it to honor someone else. And I don't get to do this very often, uh, and I'm going to try to keep it together, but I really want to honor my wife, uh, who's here today. Um, I have the incredible privilege of traveling the world and speaking to young people about the, the Word of God, and my job is getting young people excited and passionate into the Word of God, and it is such a privilege, but... Every time I leave to go to some exotic place for a week to hang out with young people, uh, I'm, I'm leaving my wife with four little kids, and it's a huge ask, and she does it uh, openly, willingly, and excited for me. We just know it's our ministry together, but there's, there's a cost to it, and um, it's, it's been a, I'll say this just very uh, openly and transparently, it's been a tough week. For myself personally this week, uh, every time I'm teaching, I, I just get attacked. It's just really like just 24-7. Uh, it's just, it's tough um, because, and I was telling Tiff this this morning, I have the privilege of standing in front of 270 young people, and, I, and my prayer is like, man, that they would get obsessed with the Word of God. And so I know that if that is what I'm doing, there's going to be opposition, and there has been a lot of opposition, and I just can't thank my wife Tiffany enough for her her prayer, for her wisdom, for her steadfastness, for her just meekness and kindness and her servant heart. And I just want to give a round of applause of honor just to my wife, Tiffany. So thank you. Thank you. If you would have chanted basic tiff, I would have neck kicked you. We can make out later. Um, so, sorry about that last part. <laughs> oh. It's been 11 years. I still get all shaky talking about my hot wife. So, uh, yeah, I know. It's awesome. The map, the Bible. Okay, on track. All right. I had a thought this morning, and I say this in love, and it's going to sound harsh or blunt, but it's not. It's in love. Uh, But you don't hear it very often these days. But say you're sitting there thinking, you know what, Brian, he looks, if I were to, yeah, I think Brian looks like he's from Ethiopia. 
If I were to pinpoint Brian on a map, you know, how he looks, how he acts, how he talks, I'd say he's, a, he's Ethiopian. Yeah, yes, I believe 100, yes, I believe that is true, that Brian is Ethiopian. If your opinion about me is not based on my passport, which is truth, you're just straight up wrong. So what you want to believe about God, what you really want God to be like, what your opinion is about God, if it's not based on truth, you're just straight up wrong. Does that make sense? Like, that just makes sense to me. If you're like, you know what, I want God to be like this, or he doesn't get mad anymore, and his wrath is gone, and he, there is no hell, and everybody wins, and it's just, everything's awesome. If that's not based on his word, I don't know how to tell you other than you're just wrong. And maybe no one's ever told you you're wrong, because we're living in a day and age where, you know, what's true for you is not true for me, but everyone's right. It's like, no, this is right, and if you're not in line with this, you're out of line. You're wrong. Sorry, I'm Canadian, sorry. Is it too late to say sorry? I don't think so, sorry. Um, anyways, I felt to say that. I don't know if I'm mean, but I just, we got to get our truth. We got to get our foundation. We got to build our life on what is true. And if it's your parents' faith or if it's whatever YouTube is cool or whatever's hype at the moment, that's going to come and go so fast because when the winds and the storms and the trials blow and beat on your house, it's going to come back to, do you know this book, yes or no? Do you know this book inside and out? And like I said, it's been a hard week, and I'm just going back to the Scripture. I'm meditating on Scripture. I'm trying to get into Scripture because that's how you fight the enemy. When Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and the enemy comes to him and starts tempting him, Jesus doesn't even say anything except Scripture. Jesus just quotes scripture. So if the enemy's coming at you and you don't know scripture, you can't quote YouTube videos or quotes from some cool rock star. You have to know the scriptures. So that's my heart. That's my prayer for you guys is that we would just, all of us, just get obsessed uh, with the scriptures. And it takes diligence. It takes time. It takes energy. Uh, you don't feel like it some days. You feel lazy. You just would rather do anything else. You'd rather just binge Netflix. But this is worth your time. It's worth your time. Amen? All right, so what I want you to do, this could be a total train wreck. Uh, pop quiz, though. I want you with the person beside you, between the two of you, I want you to summarize the story of the Old Testament in about a minute or two. You're not going to have to share, don't worry, but I want to see, can you guys recount kind of the start to the end? It's the story of God's people, what's happened, and where did the Old Testament end off? You guys can compare notes, chat, but no looking at your Bible. Raise your hand if you know more about the Old Testament now than on Monday. Good. That's the goal. Um, so, I'll, I'll summarize it. Try to track with me. It'll take maybe a minute. But you've got creation. Then there's the fall. Then there's the flood. Then there's the Tower of Babel. Then God calls Abraham saying, dude, you're going to be the father of a whole nation. And then Abraham's like, dope. He waits 25 years, has Isaac. God tells him to kill Isaac. That's awkward. He doesn't. God provides a sacrifice caught in the thorns, the ram. 
foreshadowing Christ up on the same mountain. And then Isaac has Jacob. Jacob gets renamed to Israel, who's now the, that's now the name of the nation. And then Israel has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then uh, they follow down their younger brother, Joseph, into uh, Egypt. And then they hang out there for 400 years uh, while the shock clock's waiting for the sin of the Amorites to be complete, for them to leave or to repent. And then uh, there's the exodus out of Egypt, and they send in the spies. The spies come back. They're downers. God says, you guys are going to die. And then, uh, and then except for Joshua and Caleb, so they wander around the wilderness. They receive the law, and then they come back into the promised land in Joshua. They divide and conquer. They don't finish the job. They intermarry with all the foreigners or the people that were already in there in the land, the Canaanites, and then they start... Uh, they fall into this cycle of idolatry, and they kind of hang out in idolatry all the Old Testament. Then there's the cycles of judges where the people sin, and then they uh, get judged, and then uh, God's, uh, then they repent, and then God sends a deliverer, and then there's rest, and then there's sin, and there's that cycle. Then there's the book of Ruth with Boaz. Then we won't say any more words that rhyme with Boaz. Uh, and then after that, uh, the people demand a king. After the cycle of judges, they want a physical king, so God gives them Saul. And then Saul, then there's David, then David, then there's his son Solomon, and that's the three kings of the United Kingdom. And then Solomon dies, and then there's the two dudes, his son Rehoboam and his first in command, Jeroboam. They have a bit of a fight, and uh, Rehoboam says, I'm going to be way more harsh than my dad, and the kingdom splits into two. We now have the north, also known as Israel, also known as Samaria by its capital. Then we have the south, also known by Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, and that's the tribe that uh, Judah is where the, the Messiah is going to come from, and that's prophesied. In, at the end of Genesis, there's a prophecy for each of the 12 sons of um, Jacob and the one for Judah. It says the scepter shall never depart from Judah, that the king of kings is going to come through the line of Judah. And so we know that Judah, the remnant, is always going to be there. There's always going to be, even, even when world powers almost wipe out the whole nation, they always keep a remnant because the Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah. So then there's... Um, so then the prophets are sent. There's the divided kingdom. The prophets are sent to the north and to the south. They're God's mouthpiece. Uh, they are God's covenant police, basically telling them, hey, here's the blessings and curses. You guys are disobeying. Repent and come back or all these curses are coming. And they're saying, get lost. Our life is awesome. Look at our vacation homes. Look at how blessed we are. And they don't listen. And Assyria wipes out the north in 722. And then about 140 years later, Babylon comes and destroys the south and rips them and takes them into exile for 70 years. They're over in Babylon for 70 years. And then uh, this prophecy of Jeremiah, right before Jeremiah 29, 11, Jeremiah 29, 10 says, it's going to be 70 years that you guys are going to get spanked and ruled over. And then uh, at the end of those 70 years, uh, King Cyrus, the Persian, um, he says, you know what, you guys can go back home. And then there's the return to Jerusalem, which is Nehemiah going back to rebuild the walls and then Ezra rebuilding the temple. And then only about 2%, only about 2% of the Jews the Hebrews, the Israelites, actually return from exile to Jerusalem because they've been there 70 years. Now the Persian Empire is ruling, and they're happy out there. They're fine, which makes sense when you get to the Gospels, and there's wise men from the east that were awaiting the Messiah. So it'd be people that still hung out in Babylon 
there's these wise men out here, and they come from the east all the way over to Jerusalem to try to find the Messiah because they've been waiting for him for all these years because they've been hanging out here in Babylon where they were exiled to and just stayed there. That's kind of the Old Testament. Sweet? All right, so now we're going to do the New Testament. Uh, I've got like 56 questions that you guys wrote in which I'm going to get to maybe a few of them. We'll just kind of go through the New Testament, and then whatever time we have left over, I'll just start going through these questions as fast as I can. So that's kind of the plan. Sweet, give someone a high five and say, let's freaking do this. All right. Now turn to the person beside you. Now turn to the person beside you and share why you think there's four Gospels, not just one. Any thoughts? Why four Gospels, not just one? Anyone over here? Yes. Um, well, I was reading in Deuteronomy about when they were put, like, someone on trial. Yes. Awesome. She nailed it. She said she was just cruising around in Deuteronomy. And it said that when someone to trial, you need more than one witness, ideally three or four witnesses, to testify to the accuracy. Can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah. Can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah. Can I get a witness? No. Any other thoughts? Yes. Different audiences. Yep. Different audiences. Yep. Four is better than one. Can't argue that. Yep. Yep, yep, yes. Yep, Jesus is portrayed in different ways. Um, you guys have all sat here all week. Some of you have taken notes. If you compared all of your notes, none of them would be the same. But I've said the same thing. So when you're writing things down, you're writing down things that, you, that apply to you, but also things where you're like, oh, I'd love to share that with someone else. And you're thinking about an audience to pass that on to. And so when these gospel writers are, are observing the life of Jesus, they have their particular audiences that they're thinking about, and they're writing and, uh, and actually structuring the book in a certain way that's going to appeal to their audience and speak to them more. So we're going to go through the four different gospels and the four different audiences. Uh, Luke is the only one that's chronological. The rest of them are not chronological, so it doesn't, yeah. So Matthew, does, does Matthew have another name? Anyone know his other name? Levi. Does anyone remember what tribe the Levites were, what their role was? Priests. priests. So they were the priests. So Matthew, his name was Levi, so he was from the tribe of the Levites. But what was his job when Jesus show, shows up? He's a tax collector. So something's gone wrong. Is anyone here a pastor's kid? Yeah. yeah. I'm a pastor's kid or I'm an elder's kid, whatever you want to call me. I have grown up seeing the behind-the-scenes drama that goes on in the church that just destroyed my dad. Can anyone testify this? Unfortunately, unfortunately, I freaking love the church and I'm never going to bash her because it's the bride of Christ, but there is drama that goes on between, behind the scenes sometimes that can be tough. And I saw what it did to my dad. And so this is, I'm just, this is just my thoughts. I'm not reading from scripture. This is my thoughts because I see, I see Matthew who is supposed to be a Levite, a priest. 
and yet he is a tax collector. So a tax collector back then, a tax collector back then, they were the most hated people uh, by the Jews because they were Jews employed by the Roman Empire to rip off their own people. So the, Jew, or the Roman Empire would say, hey, Matthew, you owe us 200 bucks per person. Anything above that you get to keep. And so tax collectors would threaten people. They would travel with a big posse like an MMA fighter or a rapper, and they would just threaten people, and people would have to pay more. So when Jews would go to pay their taxes, they would not make eye contact with the tax collector. They would throw the money. They would spit in disgust and walk away. They hated tax collectors because it was a Jew ripping off their own people. And so Matthew was supposed to be a priest, but he's a tax collector. So in my mind, he ran as far away as he could from religion. For some reason, something happened. And then Jesus uh, comes up and says, Matthew, follow me. And it says, immediately, Matthew stood up, left everything, followed him. Why? Because Jesus was probably the first person in a long time that saw any worth and value in Matthew and said, you know what? There's something here I want to use. Follow me. And so he picks Matthew, and Matthew is now chosen to be the dude to write the, the gospel of Matthew to the Jews. This is the gospel that's written to the Jews. To the Jews. It is all full of things that Jews care about, specifically Old Testament fulfillments. So you'll, if you're reading Matthew, you'll see this repeated phrase, and thus fulfilled this, and then it'll state a prophecy, and thus fulfilled this, states a prophecy, and thus fulfilled this, because Matthew writes this gospel, and it's all about how Jesus is the Messiah as prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament, and he just keeps dropping all of these fulfillments throughout the Old Testament that Jesus has hidden. So it's all about uh, the Old Testament fulfillment and how Jesus is the Messiah, and it's uh, stuff that Jews, Jews care about, like genealogies, uh, tracing the lineage of Jesus. Uh, it's all very focused and specific towards the Jews. So the next one, Matthew, and then the next one is Mark. Uh, there's different opinions on when Mark was written, uh, and so I'll share, I'll share mine, but uh, what, what you'll see, the more you study is the more people kind of disagree on things like dating and all this stuff. Uh, there's, there's different opinions on most things, so I hold it very uh, openly because I have been wrong more than once. Uh, I figure out I'm wrong about a few times a day, and so um, don't become dogmatic. Dogmatic means you know that you believe what you believe is true. I'm saying apart from the fundamentals of our faith, the non-negotiables, but there's things like the dating of Mark where you could be wrong and because it's still, it's not clear. Oh, no, because it gets immodest. <laughs> I would if I was Norwegian, but I am not. <laughs> I would have a very nice six pack. All right, I'd have thick blonde hair that everyone just wants to touch because it's so silky smooth. All right, Mark. Mark is, in my opinion, written to the persecuted church in Rome. So uh, what happened is there was a crazy emperor named Nero. He was a total psycho, Nero, N-E-R-O. And he, uh, he married a little boy, his, his wife, husband, whatever, was like a 12-year-old boy. Uh, he 
did crazy stuff, like one day he put his horse on the throne and said the horse is now emperor, and uh, he would hold these big, uh, he would have everyone come into the Colosseum to have singing competitions, but he would sing the whole two hours and not let anyone else sing and then declare himself the winner, and he was just not all there. And so the more you study the Roman emperors, the more you're like, whoa, it's like they're all a bit whack. So Nero... He wanted a bigger palace for himself, and uh, the counselor, whoever he answers to, said, nah. And so what he did was, in the middle of the night, he goes throughout Rome and sets fire to a huge portion of Rome, something like 30% of Rome he sets fire to, and this massive fire destroys a ton of Rome. And so, obviously, everyone's upset, and so what Nero does is he blames the fire in Rome on Christians, Now, this was around, uh, so the persecution started for four years. It was from 64 AD to 68. Um, Just for simplicity's sake, time kind of counts down in the Old Testament to Jesus, and then at Jesus, it now counts up. So now we're counting up in the New Testament time. Um, So BC is kind of before Christ, and AD is some Latin word that's basic, doesn't know. Um, So uh, 64 to 68, there was four years of intense persecution against the Christians uh, because Nero said the Christians set fire to Rome. So then he would do crazy stuff, like he would invite Christians over to his dinner parties. He'd have soldiers knock on your door. He'd open the door, and they would say, come with me, you're invited to Nero's dinner party. And then during the dinner party, he'd have all the Christians stand up and commit suicide for entertainment. And then he would take Christians, he would dip them in wax, holding a wick, and he would line his garden with burning Christians. He would uh, throw Christians into the Colosseum, and then he'd release uh, bears and, and lions and stuff, and people would just watch Christians being torn apart for entertainment. He just took all of his fury and rage and put it against Christians. So then you have Mark writing the gospel to this persecuted church in Rome, and they have one question. Is Jesus Christ worth dying for? So it's the shortest gospel, and if you read it, I don't know if you noticed, but probably every other, maybe every other, every third paragraph starts with a word, and it's immediately. It just says immediately, 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 and it's a Greek word that provokes fast reading. Because someone would run into a, a, a meeting of underground, an underground church of Christians, and he would, they would read it really fast. It's only 16 chapters, so it's the shortest one. There's no complicated parables. It's all about Jesus' authority and how the, the righteous do suffer. Because there is a mentality at the time that if you're suffering or you're persecuted, you're in sin or you're doing something wrong. And this book is 16 chapters, but one one to nine, and then there's a split, and then 10 to 16. Almost half the book is about Jesus' last three days. His trial, his beating, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So almost half the book is dedicated to the suffering of our Messiah. So the key verse of Mark, uh, there's a few SBSers here, so write it down, Mark 10, 45. It says, Um, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment to get someone released from prison. So he gave his life as a ransom to pay our debt and get us released from prison. And so this book has a huge emphasis on the sufferings of Jesus and his authority on earth. There's tons of miracles. It's an action-packed book. It is such a cool gospel. 
And we're going to look at some, um, we'll look at some Mark stories after I do this overview, because I, I think Mark's my favorite gospel. Sweet. So there's Mark. Um, and then there's another view where none of that's relevant. All right. So um, church in Rome. Matthew, Mark, Luke. So Luke and Acts are one book that were just divided to make to put it on two different scrolls instead of one. And I'll show you the structure of Luke and Acts. It looks like a big X like this. And in the middle of the X is the cross, and it's in Jerusalem. So everything in the book of Luke is heading towards the cross and Jerusalem. And it'll say, and Jesus put his eyes to go towards Jerusalem. And Jesus continues to walk towards Jerusalem. And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. The whole book is leading to, is all about Jesus walking towards Jerusalem and the cross. Then it ends. And then the book of Acts is about how the power of the Holy Spirit goes out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it's written by one dude, Luke, and it says both of them are two Theophilus. Two Theophilus. Um, there is four different opinions on who Theophilus is. Um, I don't know if I have time to go through all of them. Uh, Theo means God. Uh, Phyllis means friend of. So Theophilus means friend of God. So some people believe it's just a generic letter to all believers, all friends of God. Uh, it refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus, how you would appeal to a Roman official. So some people believe that Luke, who's the only Gentile. Anyone know, remember what a Gentile is? Not a Jew. So yeah, Luke's the only Gentile author. So he's writing to Theophilus. A Gentile, Luke, is writing to Theophilus, another Gentile, a Roman official, and he's basically writing Luke and Acts, a detailed chronicle account so that Theophilus knows everything there is to know about Jesus so that he can make a decision whether he wants to follow him or not. So some people would say that Luke and Acts, 27% of the New Testament is written by one dude to one dude as evangelism, saying, here you go, here's everything I know. And Luke's a doctor, so he's very detailed, he's very meticulous, and you'll see even the language he uses is very medical. When it says like someone has a headache, he'll spe specify what type of headache and all these little uh, medical things. So, um, and then the other opinion, which is my humble opinion, actually there's a third one. The third one is that um, when, when authors wanted to write a great work of literature, you'd have a patron or someone that would Pay, for, pay you or cover all your expenses, basically support you as you write Luke and Acts. So some people think that Luke was Theophilus' personal doctor, Theophilus was very wealthy, and Theophilus says, hey, you can write this literature, this Luke and Acts, and I will cover your expenses and whatever, and just paid for him to do it. But the third view, which is my view, which I've flipped over to about two years ago, is that Theophilus is Paul's defense lawyer. So why I think that, and we'll look at it in Acts, is that Paul has a bunch of missionary journeys, but his last one, the red one here, is him on his way to Rome because Paul's waiting for his trial in Rome. So the whole book of Acts is leading towards Paul going to Rome, and then it just ends abruptly in Acts 28 that they're waiting for Paul's trial in Rome. And so it makes sense, and 
Luke is with Paul in Rome. All the pronouns at the end of Acts say we. So Luke's writing it and he's saying, and we went here and we went there. and we. So Luke is with Paul and they're awaiting Paul's trial. And so here is a chronological detailed account about the life of Jesus and Christianity. But then the book of Acts is basically a detailed account of everything Paul's done. And so it makes sense to me that his defense lawyer going into a trial would need to know all this. So that, that's my opinion, uh, that Luke and Acts is written to Theophilus, who is Paul's defense lawyer in Rome. My opinion. Yeah. Is there a book on that? Yeah. To get all this background information, if you have a study Bible, you can open it up and it'll say, most of them will say date, um, audience, occasion, background. Um, you could look up in a Bible dictionary, Theophilus, and it'll tell you all the different views of Theophilus. Um, but... Study Bibles are a great starting point because there's the intro to every book. Um, and then if you look at the Bible, I haven't watched the Bible Project for Luke, but it, it would say to Theophilus, and they would say, say their opinion of who he is. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things where people disagree on who Theophilus is. All right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John is the only one of the 12 disciples that doesn't get brutally murdered. Um, they try to kill John by dumping him in boiling oil, in a big barrel of boiling oil. They just dump him in, but he just won't die. Uh, so they put him on a, they kick him over to an island called Patmos, and that's when he received the revelation of Revelation. Um, so John, he writes five books in our Bible, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the little ones, and then Revelation is all written by John. And he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was like Jesus' best friend. Um, and so he writes this at, towards the end of his life. He's the last remaining disciple. Uh, it's written about 60 years after Jesus was on earth. And it's written to the second generation of Christians. So all of the Christians that were there and watched Jesus' life, they've grown up and died and now it's their kids. It's the second generation of Christians that have come in, and all this weird world philosophy and other world religions have started to mix in with Christianity. And so John writes this gospel, which is a very theologically-minded gospel about how Jesus is God, and it's, all, it's trying to correct all this other mixing of different world religions. So it's a very theological-based um, gospel, and it's all about how Jesus is God. So it's written to the second generation. Ooh. Cool. Any questions on the Gospels? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was Gnosticism, syncretism, all these isms that... Um, so the Gnosticism is basically... The body is evil and the spirit is good. And so that will, there's a separation between good and evil. Anything physical is evil and everything spiritual is good. And so that leads to a bunch of gnarly stuff. And so the two extremes is uh, asceticism where basically they deny their bodies any physical pleasure because the body's evil and they just want to beat up their body and it's just like they starve their bodies or they whip their bodies and it's just like the body is evil. Or there's the other side where it's libertarianism, where they basically 
nothing matters, we can do whatever we want. Um, and that's kind of the whole church in Corinth. The letters of Corinthians are written to this church that's gone wild because they're all caught up in uh, libertarianism, which is like a free-for-all. You can do whatever you want. And he's like, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Stop sleeping with prostitutes. And they're like, well, the body's evil. We can do whatever we want because our spirit is saved. And he's like, uh-uh. So what happens with Gnosticism, with the separation of, of the flesh being evil and the spirit being good, there's no way that they can comprehend Jesus being fully God and fully man. So they're like, God can't be man. God can't be human. So they've started to separate that two, that two where it's like Jesus can't, couldn't have been a man. He had to, there, there's something going on here. So yeah, syncretism and Gnosticism is what's going on. Yeah. Um, oh, there's a lot of ways to answer that. Um, his question is, what was the teachings before this? Is that your, answer, your question? Yeah, because what I heard is that like, a lot of the early churches were like, very mystical. Like, yes. Like, Gnostics, right? Yes. It was when like, fundamental Christianity started to like, take over, that they started to be considered heretics. So, like, yes. Yes, I would agree with all that. Um, I don't know if I want to get into it. Is that all right? I think like 8% of people are stoked on Gnosticism. Um, so I'm just trying to like, yeah. I'm, you're right. Whatever you've heard and what you've said, I agree with all of it. Yeah, there's the, the, the mystics and the Gnosticism and um, Greek Greek philosophy and Greek, uh, what's the Greek gods and goddesses, um, like um, Aphrodite. And so like the, the letter of Corinth is written in, to the church in Corinth where there's the temple to Aphrodite and there's 2,000 priestesses there and you worship Aphrodite by sleeping with these temple prosti prostitutes, which are like the priestesses. So that's how you worship. So it's written to this church that's in this melting pot of like, this weird, messed up um, religion. And then Ephesus is the same. There's this, all these weird religions going on. So the, the more you understand the background to each of the letters and the cities and what's going on with the religions, the more the letter makes sense. Um, so yeah, cool. All right, let's do, let's do a gospel story and then we'll take a hug break. All right, I just like gospel stories. So Turn to, let's do Mark. Mark, Mark, Mark. You don't say R's in Australia. My kids would come home from school and we'd have to do like speech therapy stuff with them. And they would say, whenever you see an E-R, it's pronounced ah, computer, printer. It's like, no, it's a computer. <laughs> I'm typing on my computer. My kids are Aussies. All right. So I want to look at chapter 6, and the story I want to look at is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Why I'm doing that story again is because you guys would all know it. Jesus feeds 5,000, you're like, yeah, sweet, I've heard it, bread, loaves, fish, high five. 
But when we try to picture ourselves there, it becomes more cool. So, context. What's happening before and after? We need to know the context because that helps set the stage. Because if you don't know the context, you can misinterpret what's going on. It's like you open up an email from your mom when you're in outreach and it just says, your little dog, Fluffy, was hit by a semi-truck and exploded. You close the email and you are weeping. You're weeping over Fluffy's dead body for like four days. And then you call your mom finally when there's a break on outreach and you call your mom and you're like, I cannot believe Fluffy was hit by a semi-truck. And then your mom's like, what are you talking about? Didn't you read the whole email? I said I had the most horrible dream last night that Fluffy ran out into the road and got smoked by a semi-truck and died. But then I woke up to Fluffy licking my face and we went on a walk and it was great. But the context was missed. You just read the middle and then close it. So that's kind of the same danger with the Bible when you're like, you know, oh God, just speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. We just say, Hosea 1 verse 2, go marry a wife of whoredom and be faithful to her. Okay, I can do this. If you don't look at the context, you're going to misinterpret a lot of things going on if you just pick and choose. Can God speak through Bible bingo? Absolutely, he has. But if it's like, if that's your devotional quiet, quiet time life where it's just like, come on, Lord, boom. God hates your sacrifices. He's going to wipe the dung of your sacrifices on your face. Malachi 2.3. Okay, God's going to wipe crap on my face. Great. It's going to be a good day. So you just got to be careful. So um, I closed the Bible, but yet we should be opening it. All right. Mark chapter 6 starts with verse 30, which is feeding of the 5,000. So what's happened before then? Um, I don't know how far back to go. Chapter 5 is Jesus heals this demon-possessed guy. He's got a legion of demons, 2,000 demons. And it says that he, 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 Jesus shows up on the shore on the boat, and there's this dude there that is breaking chains. He's naked. He's bashing himself with rocks, and he's just running around screaming. The guy's gnarly. So you just picture this naked dude smashing himself with rocks, breaking chains, running around screaming in caves not someone you want to introduce to your parents. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an awkward guy. And then Jesus meets him, casts out all the demons, uh, and then they go uh, into all some pigs, and then the pigs go down a bank, and they all die. It's in Jewish territory. Why are there 2,000 pigs if they're unclean? Anyways, it shows you how far the, the Jews have gone. But anyways, there's this, there's this whole story. But what's interesting is, is the demon-possessed guy, he says, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go to the Decapolis. I want you to go to the 10 major cities, and I want you to share about what I've done. So this demon-possessed dude is the first missionary in the New Testament. He's the first commissioned missionary in the New Testament. Everyone else before then, and most of them afterwards, I don't know if you've read the Gospels lately, where Jesus just will heal somebody and say, don't tell anyone. Has anyone noticed that, where it's like, don't tell anyone. Don't. He like heals a blind dude. And he's like, don't tell anyone. And the guy's like, what? Just pretend I'm still blind. Or he heals someone that's deaf and mute. They can't hear or talk. And he heals them. And he's like, don't tell anyone. And you're like, what? So it doesn't make any sense unless you understand the Jewish mindset that the Messiah that the Jews were expecting 
was a political messiah that was going to overrule the Roman Empire and establish the Jews as the physical power on the earth. And so everyone that Jesus says, don't tell anyone, is a Jew because they have the wrong mentality of what the Messiah is. Because if they're like, you're the Messiah, and he's like, don't tell anyone because they're going to start telling everybody, our king is here, the Messiah is here, it's time to take the Roman Empire down, let's go. And even Peter in the garden, they're like coming, Peter's like, game time, shing, boom, cuts off some dude's ear, and Jesus is like, no, puts the ear back on. Peter himself was still expecting political Messiah, time to overthrow the Roman Empire, it's time for the Jews to reign. You know, Peter and his friends and the boys are always like, hey, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, can I be number one and my brother number two? And he's thinking physically on earth. When Jesus is the king, we want to be your number one and number two. And then even their moms like, hey, can can my sons be number one and two? Like, they are only thinking political. So they have what's called the wrong Messiah complex. They don't understand what the Messiah is, that he was coming to establish a new kingdom that was not of this this world. They're thinking of prophecies like in Daniel where there's the big statue and in the middle of the Roman Empire, this rock comes and just boom, explodes the statue. They're like, yeah, that's Jesus and that's going to be when Jews become the world power. That was their Jewish mentality. So... Jesus is telling all the Jews, don't tell anyone. And then this crazy demoniac who gets set free from all these demons, Jesus says, you've encountered me and you know enough to go be the first missionary in the New Testament and sends him out. He didn't do his, you know, six-month church missionary training course. He just, what, he knew enough. He knew my life sucked. I was smoking myself with rocks in the face in a cave screaming naked, met Jesus, and now I'm good. And goes and tells everyone what's happened. This plays into the context. Someone had a question. Yeah. Why do the Jews have that mentality? Did I, I cut you off. Is that the whole question? I, sorry, I walked away mid-question. I was so rude. Um, Why they had that is because there are prophecies like the Daniel prophecy where there's um, this stone that's coming to smoke the Roman Empire. So they interpreted that as a new physical kingdom, not a a heavenly kingdom that's going to be established. Um, There's all these prophecies about the Messiah being the king. There's all these like prophecies that they just misunderstood as physical king, not spiritual king. They misinterpreted it as a physical kingdom with the Jews, not a spiritual kingdom that's going to last for eternity. So they just misinterpreted a bunch of these prophecies. So um, then we get to chapter 6, Jesus rejected Nazareth. And then in chapter 7, Jesus sends out his uh, disciples on outreach. Verse 7, he says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals and to put on and to not put on two tunics. I would love to do this. This is what they did in New Zealand. It's called Faith Journey. There's something Christian. It was like it was something. I think it's called Faith Journey. They drop you off at the northern tip of New Zealand and they say you've got a week to get home. And then the staff just leave. It's awesome. 
uh, and they have no money, they've got nothing, uh, and then the students just somehow make their way back to the Bible school, and then everyone shares the stories, and it's always like five-star hotels, and like we got picked up in a Tesla, and like it's just always awesome. Um, I'm sure there's horrific stories, but I would love to do an outreach where we go with just no money and see what happens, but liability and parents and insurance, it's not smart. <laughs> So, but Jesus does it. He's like, you guys go, don't take anything, trust God. And so he sends them out, uh, and verse 13 says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who are sick, and healed them. Then we have the death of John the Baptist. His head gets cut off. And then verse 30 is where we'll pick up the feeding of the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus from outreach and told him all that they had done and taught. So they come back, they're fired up, it's debrief week, they've just had an epic outreach, they come back, stoked on life, and they're like telling Jesus everything that they had done. Verse 31, Jesus is awesome, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and let's rest a while. Like, let's just get away, boys. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So it's been so busy, the disciples haven't even eaten. They're exhausted, but they're stoked. And Jesus is like, let's go have some debrief man time. Let's sit around a campfire and let's just chill and share stories. And they're all high-fiving, being like, that sounds awesome. So they're all stoked on what Jesus, his idea. Verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they're getting in a boat. They're going away. What do you think were the emotions in the boat? How's everybody feeling? Stoked. Just stoked? Yeah. Tired, but stoked. Like, tired, excited, stoked. That was awesome. Outreach was cool. Think about all the, they're sharing all the miracles, all the demons being cast out, all the crazy stuff they saw, and then things change. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they all ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So picture this. You're tired but stoked. You're going to your debrief. You're going to your camp spot. You're in the boat. You're with the boys. Everyone's fist pumping. It was so awesome. Then you see like, well, it says 5,000 plus women and children. So you see 15,000 people just running to your campsite. (laughs) Now what are you thinking? Like, you're tired already, but you're stoked. Now you see 15,000 people going to your campsite, and you're like, no way. You haven't eaten. You're tired. I don't know if anyone gets hangry, angry and hungry. Yeah, Uh, I get hangry when you're really hungry and angry. And so they they see all these people going to their campsite, and I just think that just the vibe changes in the boat to like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. Turn the boat around. We're not doing this. We're tired. We just did outreach. We deserve a break. But Jesus, he's Jesus, verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So Jesus is like, cool, opportunity. And he just starts preaching. So Jesus, he's all in, he's preaching the word, he's doing his thing. And I'm thinking about the disciples. The disciples, I think they're just, there's mumbles and grumbles and they're just, uh, they're in a funk. Verse 35, and when it grew late his disciples came to him. So 
I think they've been patient for a few hours. A few hours, they're just sitting there waiting on Jesus, being like, get rid of these people. And then they start having a powwow, being like, all right, how do we shut this thing down? We can't just shut it down. Jesus is not going to let us shut it down. We've got to be clever and smart and figure out a way to shut this thing down so that Jesus actually buys it. And so they're like, okay, Jesus is a nice guy. He's got compassion. Let's, let's pretend we are concerned about the crowd. And then they're like, yeah, 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 that's it. All right, so they pretend that they actually give a crap about the crowd. So, or give a poop. Sorry for UK people. All right, 35. And when it, was set, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a desolate place. This is a remote area, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat. These guys must be hungry, Jesus. Great sermon. We loved it. But these guys are hungry, and we're concerned for them. You're unaware, you're socially unaware of what's going on. Maybe it's time for them to go home. Jesus, he kind of gets annoying here. 37, but Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. So just pause the story. If that's you, if you're a disciple, you just did outreach, you're so exhausted, you haven't eaten, you're stoked about a getaway, then it's broken up by 15,000 people, and then you come to Jesus with this awesome rock-solid plan to send away the crowd, and then he says, you give them something to eat. All of a sudden, you're annoyed, you're ticked off, and it shows in their answer. And it says, and they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? Should we go buy a billion dollars worth of bread, Jesus? 200 denarii is like, I think a denarii is just like a year's wage or something crazy. He's like, should we go, you know, a billion dollars worth of bread? Yeah, good call, Jesus. Like, they're sarcastic, they're angry, being like, this sucks. And he said, go and see how many loaves that you have. So now he tells the disciples, go figure out how much food we got. At the end, it says, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So that's why I'm saying 15,000. Women, children, about 15,000. So Jesus says, how much bread and food, how much food do we have? Go see. So you just got to get into the mindset of the disciple. So the disciple is like so annoyed and he's just going out to people, you got any bread? No? Sweet. You got any bread? Oh, you got a fishtail. Thanks, dude. Oh, you've got, oh, half a bagel. Thanks for that. And you're just walking from group to group, group, getting like even more annoyed because you're getting all these little scraps. So then you come back to Jesus after you've gone to talk to all these 15,000 people. You come back and your inventory, all you've got is you've got five pieces of bread and two fish. Then Jesus commanded them to sit down in groups of the, on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples and told them to set it before the people. So I want you guys all to stand up. We're going to try to visualize this. Stand up just real quickly, and I want you to hold an imaginary basket. Hold an imaginary basket. You're holding a basket, and you look in the basket in front of your face, and there's a fish head and half a bagel. <laughs> and you're looking at 15,000 people, and Jesus says, go feed them. How do you feel? Yell it out. Stupid. Stupid. Dumb. Embarrassed. Frustrated. You want to disappear. You want to go home. This sucks. All right. Now, 
You picture walking to the first group of people, and what do you say? You go to the first group of 100 people. I walk up to this group of people, and I'm like, you guys hungry? Like, <laughs> like it's, <coughs> it's awkward. And then the first dude puts his hand in the basket right in front of your face and pulls out a big French baguette. It just appears in front of your face. Then the next person, his wife, pulls out a whole salmon right in front of your face. It could not be a closer miracle. And then you're looking at the other disciples, and they're all like, Peter's got a urine stain. Like, they're all just like, what just happened? And now all of a sudden, they're throwing fish and bread, and it just goes crazy. You've got 15,000 people participating in the same miracle, and every person is getting a piece of that miracle. Now how do you feel? Stoked, awesome, mind-blowing, wouldn't want to be anywhere else. That's the power of a moment. How many miracles have we missed out on because we were afraid to look stupid, so we tapped out? Hey, you guys can sit down. That's what challenges me about this story is so many times I'm walking along and Jesus is like, go pray for that dude. And I'm like, no, I'm tired. I'm tired. I had a big day of ministry. I don't want to look stupid. Uh, I don't want to look dumb. That's embarrassing. No. And I have all these excuses. But how many of these miracles have I missed out on because I just didn't want to be put out? I didn't want to be inconvenienced or embarrassed. One moment, the disciples want to disappear. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. They would like to be anywhere else. And one moment later, they're a part of the greatest miracle that's one of the greatest miracles that's ever happened. And they went, they're like, we almost missed that. We almost tapped out. And it's the power of a moment. And they all ate and were satisfied. They didn't just all have a bite. They all ate a big lunch and they were all full. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So we've got here, uh, i got to erase. Um, I know what you're all thinking. <laughs> you little perverts. All right. Okay. All right. So you've got Mark chapter 6. Mark 6. Whoops. How many baskets were left over? Twelve baskets. Twelve baskets were left over. All of these little details are often really interesting. So, everything's awesome. They're all celebrating this miracle. The disciples have had a change of heart. They're stoked now. They are awesome. Jesus becomes annoying again. Verse 45, he says, Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. You've got 15,000 people jumping around, singing, high-fiving, eating their fish and their bread, and everyone's just praising God of this miracle. And the disciples are, you know, they're dancing in a circle. Everyone's hooting and hollering. And Jesus says, boys, go, leave. Kicks them out of the party. So the 12 disciples are like, what? We didn't want to be here, now we do. And Jesus says, time to go. So he kicks the disciples out of the party and sends them out on the boat, and he said, I'll take care of the crowd. So he dismisses the crowd, sends the disciples away by themselves on the boat. 
And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So I want you to chat to the person beside you. What do you think Jesus went up on the mountain to pray about? All right, any ideas? What did Jesus pray about? What? Prayed for a storm? Yeah, just a mess with the boys? Yeah. So asking the Father for wisdom to teach, yep, to teach the disciples. Oh, Franklin, give it to me. Just relationship with the Father? Yeah. 100% God, 100% man. Yep. Getting rest, so he was tired? Does God get tired? I don't know. Yep. Yeah, so praying for the crowd that just saw that miracle. Yeah, good. Boom. So what has happened like right before this? John the Baptist gets his head cut off for Jesus. Does Jesus and John the Baptist know each other? Yeah, they're cousins. So this is like the first time things are ramping up. Jesus knows, all right, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed here because of me. And John the Baptist, his cousin, has just had his head cut off and Jesus hears of this, and he's just, I don't know, I think he's, it, we see there in the Gospels, it says, and he wept over Lazarus, the guy that died. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, he has his emotions, and he's got his, his cousin who's just has head cut off. So I think that's on his mind. Any other thoughts? Yes. All of the above. Yeah, all of the above. It doesn't really say, but yep. Yep. <laughs> You've been taught, but I think that's because that's the next verse. Yes. Yes. So what she said is, is spot on. So look, let's look at the next verse. It says, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And this was about the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So it is the middle of the night at, say, call it 4 a.m. And Jesus is on the mountain praying. And he says, and he sees them out on the, on the water. And it says that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. These dudes are fishermen that have grown up on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is known even to this day to whip up storms of waves 15 feet high. Like it is a big storm that's hitting them. And these sailors... These fishermen who have grown up on this sea are struggling. And Jesus sees that they're struggling. And, uh, and I, think he, I think that they were on his mind. Because what's going on on the boat, if you think about the disciples again, what's the vibe in the boat? So the vibe in the boat is they're tired. Then they get to get promised debrief. Then a crowd comes and they're angry. Then they see a miracle, so they're stoked. 
Then Jesus kicks them out. Now they're struggling in the ocean in a storm. So what's the vibe in the boat? I think they're all angry. I think they're all frustrated. I think they're thinking, thanks for nothing, Jesus. Jesus just bailed on us. And typically when you're in the midst of a storm, you think that way. Thanks for nothing, Jesus. Thanks for bailing on me, Jesus. But yet Jesus never takes his eyes off them and is interceding, I think, for them. So in the midst of the storm, when you're feeling alone, when you're feeling like Jesus has just totally left you out to dry, he never takes his eyes off of you. And so we see that here, and it says that he comes to them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So he's walking on the water, which is pretty cool. And typically when you see a Christian poster of Jesus walking on water, it's like this like calm pond and like Jesus is glowing and just kind of like strolling with his like flowing hair. But there's a huge storm going on with 15 foot waves. So imagine Jesus walking on the waves. He's going up, they're going up, then down, down. I don't know if you've been in a, in a boat in big waves where you can just see another boat and then it goes up and down. It's pretty weird. So they scream because they think it's a ghost. Why? It's 4 a.m. They're in the middle of a storm. Some body is floating up and then floating down. I would scream and think it's a ghost. It's not Jesus like strolling to them and they're like, dude, Jesus. It's in the middle of a storm and it just looks totally trippy and they're all freaking out. A question I have that's not in the Bible is how did Jesus get in the boat? I don't know if he like did like this big hovering land and then a high-fiving or if they like help him and he like rolls in. Like I don't know how graceful it was, but somehow he gets in the boat. Um, but I'd like to see how that happened. What's interesting is, you guys remember the oldest book in the Bible? Job. Job says, Who alone has stretched out the heavens with his hand and who alone has trampled on the waves of the sea under his foot? So the oldest book of the book, or oldest book of the Bible, Job, talks about who is God and who has trampled over the waves of the sea under his feet. And it talks about God walking on the water. So why is Jesus... Actually, let's, let's finish the story and then we'll ask this question. Um, For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Verse 52, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, you guys are going to chat it with the person beside you. What is verse 52 doing in there? It says they don't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus has just walked on water, and now all of a sudden they're talking about the bread again. What is verse 52 talking about? Go for it. Let's hear some thoughts. Why are we talking about bread again? Their hearts were hardened. They did not understand about the loaves. Yep. Bingo. I hope you all heard what he said. He said, the disciples didn't realize that when you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Jesus, the disciples didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't, they just thought Jesus can make a ton of bread. Jesus can just provide a ton of bread. That's awesome. 
but he's trying to reveal to the disciples who he is. So what does it reveal to the disciples? When Jesus is walking on water and then the storm stops, what does that communicate to the disciples about who they're dealing with? This is the creator God who has actually created creation and creation submits to him. Would that be encouraging to the people that are in the persecuted church in Rome reading this? Because they're asking, is Jesus worth dying for? Yeah, he is. Why? Because he created all of this. He can make a billion pieces of bread if he wants to, but he can also walk on top of the ocean. Why? Because he created it. Creation submits to him. These miracles, these stories, Jesus is trying to unfold and unpack who he is, and the disciples just aren't getting it. They still have that wrong Messiah complex, but he's trying to show them, when you have me, when you have Jesus, you have everything you need. You have everything you need. All right, flip forward one chapter to chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they've had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Jesus is like, man, we got pickle here, boys. Man, what are we going to do? Verse, verse 4, and his disciples answered him, Jesus, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How are we going to do this? This is a head scratcher. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's a huge crowd. There's no food. What are we going to do? We giggle because they're so dumb. But how many people in this room saw God provide for you to get here and are now stressed about God providing for outreach? Don't laugh too fast at the disciples. Look in the mirror first. Have you ever seen God just do something and then be stressed or confused because that same scenario is in your face again? The disciples are constantly like a mirror. If we just stop laughing at them and think, man, what would I do in this scenario? Probably the same thing. And he said, how many, how can one, uh, verse 5, and he said to them, see how many we have, see how many loaves. They said seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, set before the crowd, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven thousand, or sorry, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmutha. So... Very similar story two chapters later. Mark chapter 8. How many baskets were left over? Seven baskets. So a good Bible study question is why? Why 12 baskets? Why 7 baskets? What's interesting with these stories is the geography. The geography of where these take place is so important. So... 12. What else, what else is there 12 of? And this takes place in Jewish territory. There's the 12 tribes of Israel. 
There's the 12 disciples. And this takes place in Jewish territory. What's interesting is we've got to figure out, right, where did the second miracle take place? The same miracle. So we have to keep reading back to find the context of where does it say where they are geographically. So we, we go back and back and back until we get to chapter 7, the paragraph just before the story started. Chapter 7, verse 31, it says, Then he returned from the region of Syria and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Then he went into the region of the Decapolis. Do we remember where the Decapolis, where have we heard the Decapolis? The demon guy. So Jesus sends the demon guy to the Decapolis, which is Gentile territory just outside the promised land. The Decapolis is this big region. So when Jesus shows up there three chapters later, there is 4,000 people waiting for him. Why? The demoniac's been a busy missionary. 4,000 people are waiting for Jesus. They've heard of him because that guy has been a busy missionary. So geographically, this takes place, the second one takes place in Gentile territory. And it refers to, in Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, it says, when you enter the promised land, it's going to be full of seven nations, seven Gentile nations, which I will displace. So what Jesus is doing when he's in Jewish territory and at the end there is 12 basketful left over, he's saying, for the Jews, I'm the bread of life offering salvation for all the 12 tribes of the Jews. Then he steps outside into Gentile territory and he's got seven basketful left over for the seven nations saying, I am here for the Jews and the Gentiles. I am salvation and the King of Kings, Lord of Lords for all. I am the bread of life for all. Yes. Yeah, so her question was, is that why the demoniac was sent out because it wasn't to, Gen or it wasn't to Jewish territory? Yes, he gets sent to Gentile territory where people just don't have a preconceived idea of who the Messiah is. The demoniac didn't have a preconceived idea of the, who Jesus was, and he just went and preached about Jesus. So then Jesus rocks up, 4,000 people waiting to hear more. All right, you guys ready for the last half hour? New Testament, we've done the four Gospels. Four different authors writing to four different audiences, and all these stories in there, when you're reading it, spend time thinking, what would it like to be there? What would it be like to be there? Meditate on it, chew on it, sit there thinking, how would I respond? And then ask the question, what does this reveal about Jesus? What is he trying to communicate? He's always trying to unpack who he is. He's trying to correct the wrong Messiah complex and communicate, I am the creator. I am God of creation. I am the provider. Um, I am God. I'm going to die on the cross. All these things. So then that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Someone asked if there's two Johns. Yeah, John the Baptist. Um, he prepared the way. He was the one, Jesus' cousin. Um, and then there's John the Apostle. He's the one that wrote the five books of the Bible. John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John. So there's two different Johns. Now we get into the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the spread of the gospel that's going out, and Acts is the backbone of the New Testament. It's the backbone of the New Testament. So what I mean by that, it's the story of the gospel going to all the nations, and that's what this map is about. This map is about Paul's missionary journeys. So there's, I don't know if this is going to work with me next to speakers, but Antioch right here is Paul's home church. 
And Paul goes on these journeys, and he travels around uh, preaching Jesus. He travels, and then he'll come back to Antioch. And then he'll go again, a second trip, come back to Antioch. A third trip, come back to Antioch. So these three trips, he's going and planting churches in all these different cities, in Philippi and Thessalonica and Colossae and Corinth and all these different towns and cities. And then the rest of the New Testament is mainly Paul's letters to those churches. So First and Second Corinthians is Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. Uh, the book of Coloss- Colossians is Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. You've got Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. You've got First and Second Thessalonians, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. They're all stressed in their crime because they thought they've missed the second coming. And he's like, relax, we're all still here. You haven't been left behind. Dun, dun, dun. So they're panicked. So each of these little churches and cities have their own issues. And we're kind of reading you know, one side of a letter conversation. So we have a lot of work to do to figure out, okay, what's going on in this city? What's going on politically, geographically? What's happening? And so Paul's writing these letters to these churches. Romans, uh, Paul's writing this book to the church in Rome. So what's the background? The background's so important. Uh, the background can like totally change how you view a book. So pretend, uh, pretend I've written a love letter. I've written this, this beautiful love letter and I'll say, the scenario is, this is a love letter written by a World War II soldier. He sends this to his fiance, and then he's killed in battle four days later. You read this love letter, and you're like, man, that is so beautiful. That is such a sweet letter. That brings a tear to my eye. The emotions it provokes is one of, like, sincere, true love. And then I'll read the same love letter, and I'll say, okay, this is a 16-year-old American dude from Oklahoma, and he's going, to wait, he's going away to football camp for three weeks, and he sends this to his girlfriend he's been dating for two months. And you're like, this is such a cheesy letter. This 16-year-old dude has no idea what love is. This guy is just, you know, winging it. Like, it makes you feel like that letter is cheesy. And then I can read the same love letter, and I'll say, okay, the background to this love letter is that this is a guy writing this to his mistress while he's away on vacation with his family. It's an affair going on. So then you get angry. This letter provokes different emotions. Then I can read the same love letter and say, this is two guys. This is a gay couple, and that provokes different emotions again. So it's the same love letter, but four different background stories completely change how you view that letter. So knowing the background to the books actually affects how you interpret them, how you read them. And so say with the book of Romans, uh, there's this emperor named Claudius who was racist, hated the Jews, and he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Just every Jew, get out of Rome. This was in 49 AD. He just kicks them all out. And then so for five years, all the, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome. Claudius died, thankfully, and then a new emperor came up to reign, and his wife was half Jewish, so he wanted to please her. So he's like, all right, all the Jews can come back in. So all the Jews come back in, and so now for five years, the church in Rome has been run by Gentiles, all Gentiles. Now the Jews come back, and they're like, all right, you guys can leave. We're back. And they're like, no, nah, this is our church. And, the, and the, the Jews are like, no, this is our church. And there's a huge split and divide in the church between Jews and Gentiles. So Paul is writing this letter all about unity and the body of Christ, how salvation came first for the Jews, then the Gentiles, how the Gentiles have been grafted in, how we are one body and we all have different functions and, and unity. He's writing this letter to a church that is split totally in half because of race. 
And so that's the letter that, and so when you read the second half of it, the application all about unity and serving each other and loving each other and not being divided and honoring each other's gifts and differences, it makes a lot more sense knowing the background. So that's, um, and I could go through all the books of the New Testament just looking at what is the background. And how to find that would be in your study Bible, it would say the date, audience, occasion, and usually it's the occasion or the background, which, which will be about a page or a couple paragraphs, will say what's actually going on uh, and what Paul is writing into. So most of the letters uh, in the New Testament are Paul writing to churches that he has established on his missionary journeys. Now, there are a few letters where Paul is actually writing to people. So you've got First and Second Timothy, you've got Titus, and you've got Philemon. So those are what's called the pastoral epistles, where Paul's writing letters to actual dudes, saying, here you go. So Titus, uh, Paul just bails, leaves him on this island called Crete, right here. And he says, Titus, just establish a church on this island, good luck. And it's full of like drunken sailors. And Titus is like, thanks. So Paul's letter to Titus is like how to establish a church with drunken sailors. Um, and then uh, Philemon uh, is an incredible story of, um, of forgiveness because uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave and that's punishable by death. And so Paul sends him back to his slave owner, uh, uh, Philemon, and says, Philemon, you got to forgive this dude. So um, there's the, there's the letters where Paul writes to churches and then who Paul writes to people. And then you have what's called the general epistles where it's other authors besides Paul. So you've got the book of James, you've got First and Second Peter, you've got Jude, and then Hebrews. No one knows who wrote Hebrews. If they say they know, they're full of it. No one knows. So, um, yeah, and then you have the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation kind of freaks people out, but you've got 27 books in the New Testament 26 are about Jesus, and so is the last one. The, the book of Revelation is about the gospel in the, physical, or in the spiritual realm. It's like observing the gospel taking place in the spiritual realm. So um, John writes this while he's a prisoner in Patmos on this island breaking rocks as a prisoner, and he's just like, and then I saw this, and it was like that, and it was like this, and it's cyclical. Most, like Acts, you can read it like where it's in time, like it's on a timeline. This is all taking place. But the book of Revelation goes like this. It's the same event over and over and over from different angles. So that's why you read it and it's just like, and the great beast was thrown into the lake of fire and died forever. And you're like, sweet. Then it's like, and then there's the great whore. That's what it says. Then there's the great whore and then she dies finally. And you're like, sweet. And then there's some other great big dragon and then he dies. And so it's like, it's the same thing over and over from different angles and John is trying to communicate what he is seeing in the spiritual realm in a written language. So he's very limited as to, he's like, and it was like this, and it was like, his eyes were like sapphire, and it was like this. Um, and it's highly symbolic. It's what's called apocalyptic literature. So it's very symbolic. All the numbers are symbolic. All the, everything is very symbolic. So, um, Yeah. Sweet. Any New Testament questions? Otherwise, we'll just kind of go through your Q&A for Franklin. Let's hear it. How did they pick which books are in the Bible? Okay, yeah, that's one of the questions. How did they pick what books are in the Bible? This is what's called the process of the canon. Not like a pirate gun, but canon is like a, 
the canon means like a, a, a measure or a rule or a standard. And so this process is, um, went on throughout church history in the first kind of two to 300 years after Jesus. They had many meetings with church fathers and church leaders to decide what books were actually accepted into our what's called closed canon, that which is our complete 66 books of the Bible. Uh, there was books that had a hard time that people fought over. Uh, Esther, they didn't want in the Bible because Esther never mentions God. Uh, you've got James. Uh, Martin Luther didn't want James in there because James was all about works uh, instead of faith, and he didn't like that. And so you've got books that they fought over, but they had this the canon, this standard that they all had to come in line with. And there were books like the Gospel of Thomas, the Book of Enoch, the First and Second Maccabees, the Book of Judas, all these different books that didn't meet this standard that were different theologically, and the church fathers decided this does not it's not the same thing. So it does take an element of faith that we have the right 66 books, which is getting harder and harder for young people, for our generation, just to accept that. Um, and so it's a, it's a long, huge topic that we have uh, a three-hour lecture on in every SBS is how, the canon, the process, like how did we get here? The thing that I like um, is if you look at the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapters 1, 1 through 39 is all about um, kind of judgment. And then there's this break, and something happens in chapter 40 all the way to chapter 66, and it's all about the new heaven and the new earth and this coming king and the, and the suffering servant and all this stuff. And so the first 39 books are about judgment, and then the second 27 books are about uh, this, the new covenant and the coming king, which is how our Bible is actually set up. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. So even how they structure the canon mirrors the book of Isaiah, which to me is, is cool. So, um, but yeah, I can't, I can't explain it away sufficiently enough that it, it removes any element of faith that, yeah, God was there in those meetings with those church fathers, those many, many meetings discussing for days, weeks on end of what books are the closed canon. So... Um, lots of hands shooting up. Should I do hands or should I do the written? We'll do written. <laughs> Everyone's, I'll do the written ones just to honor those who actually wrote in questions. Um, so we've only got 12 minutes. We'll see what happens. Can women be lead pastors? <laughs> Skip. All right. Um, oh, gosh. That was a great first question. All right, I will display the two different opinions because in YWAM you will just hear the one uh, and I'll just kind of spell it out because um, there's people that love Jesus on both sides. So the two different views are what's called um, egalitarian, egalitarian, which is YWAM, our founder wrote a book called Why Not Women, hardcore egalitarian. Then the other view is called complementarian. Complementarian. So, what is the the what it kind of boils down to is we're not talking worth or value. We are talking about roles and functions. 
Did God, the question that I boil it down to, Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain something to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. So I have four kids. I've got an eight-year-old who asks a million questions a day. So I try to condense everything down to a conversation with my son. So if my eight-year-old son says, Dad, is there any difference between growing up a man versus growing up a woman? A woman? How I respond shows where I land on this. So egalitarian would say there is no difference between male and female. A complementarian would say that God has created male and female with different roles and functions. That's the discussion, and there's people that love Jesus on both sides. So um, am I against women teachers? Absolutely not. Where it kind of comes to a, a, a head, kind of comes to this discussion is where it says in 1 Timothy 2 and in Titus, where it's talking about how to set up uh, eldership in the church, it says that the elder has to be a husband of one wife and it has to be a godly father. So it, when it's talking about qualifications for eldership, it's all male. So the egalitarian standpoint would say, no, the Greek means it's not, there's not a gender assigned to the Greek. I don't know Greek. Um, so I, 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 I feel so inadequate to actually overview this discussion. Um, the original language, New Testament's written in Greek, Old Testament's written in Hebrew and Aramaic, so we translate it to English. So that's kind of the um, discussion where it says in Ephesians, the, for the husband is the head of the wife. The word head is a big discussion as well, because head can either mean authority, like the head of a company, or head can mean source, like the head of a river. So how you interpret that word, head, also plays into it as well. So I don't know where I stand on this discussion, but I've studied both sides in-depthly, and I see validity in both sides. But if there's ever someone that's just like, we're not going to send females to teach, I'd be like, I got a huge problem there. Because the church will never reach its full potential without fully utilizing women. And when you go onto the mission field, you'll be surprised most of the orphanages and the, and the places making huge difference are run by women. So I would never get in the way of a woman uh, being in ministry at all. Whether a woman can be an elder or a head pastor, that's where I've got questions and I don't know. Not that I'm against it, I'm just unsure because I, I don't understand those biblical texts where the qualifications for eldership are male. Does that make sense? I know this is a highly emotional discussion, and I don't want to just drop a bomb and walk away, but I kind of want to bring it down to that question. Is there a difference growing up male versus growing up female? If I'm going to answer that to my son, and what is the answer there? And I think even each of you guys are going to be thinking of your answer to that in different ways, uh, but just hold it very lightly because it's a very uh, heated discussion. So I'm going to quickly move on before all these hands sh shoot up or shoot me. All right. Yes, I still love women. Um, so I don't, just for your opinion or if you're going to communicate this to someone else, I don't know where I stand on that. I'm somewhere... Somewhere floating between both. I don't know. It's something I'm looking into more. Um, what Bible commentaries do you recommend? Um, in SBS, School Biblical Studies, we actually don't allow the use of commentaries. So why is because a commentary is one 
person's opinion on Scripture. So if you read one commentary, you're going to have one person's view on that Scripture. And so what we say for these nine months that they're studying through every book of the Bible in SBS, we say for these nine months, don't look at commentaries. Not that they're bad, but we want you to interact with scriptures yourself and ask a ton of questions, not just read one dude's interpretation. Um, And so commentaries are great. My favorite resource, if I was to condense it, would be the ESV Study Bible. If I were to condense it to one resource, ESV Study Bible, I love uh, it's just great. So, um, yeah, but that's just my opinion, and it's worth what it's worth. Oh, man. <laughs> Pass. Um, we've covered some of this. What's the book of Enoch? Is it wrong to put art in your Bible, such as paint or do pictures? that cover on top of verses, no? Well, I wouldn't like scratch out verses, but I would definitely. My view of the Bible is in the 1500s, in the, middle, in the dark ages, uh, in Northern Ireland, in the 1500s, um, one page of the Bible was being sold on the black market because it was illegal. One page was being sold for two months wages. So, and you didn't get to choose what page you got. So, you know, some dude, he saved up for two months and just gets handed like Leviticus 19, everything not to have sex with. Um, and so it's like, don't have sex with your mom. Don't have sex with your sister. Don't have sex with your sister's mom. Don't have sex with your sister's sister because that's your sister. It's like, on. it's like, yeah, I get it. Don't have sex with animals. Don't have se- it's like, just say only have sex with your wife. <laughs> that's it. Um, so, but I have, I have that reverence and fear of God over every single page as though that was the only page I got in Northern Ireland for two months' wages. So in Australia, average wage is like five grand Australian. So say I've, say I've saved up 10 grand, and I just sneak in, risk my life. I pay 10 grand, and I get this one page of the Bible, and it's Deuteronomy 12. Can God transform my life over Deuteronomy 12? Absolutely. And so it says in, in Timothy, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and for correction. And so that, that term used, God breathed, is literally, literally it says in the Hebrew that, or in the Greek that God just breathed all these words on here. Uh, and so that's why I, I, I really uh, approach the Bible humbly and with a great fear of the Lord. And it says in James, not many people should be teachers because you're going to be judged more strictly, not necessarily on the judgment day by God, but by other people. And so I, I really... And very quick to say, I don't know, because typically I know all of the discussions that's going on behind the question that I feel so inadequate actually just summarizing it into a sentence to sound smart, because there's so many different opinions by so many different people that love Jesus, and I don't want to discredit discredit all those other opinions. Um, So, um, yeah, I forget what that question was answering. Um, What's the book of Enoch? Uh... It's weird. It's in the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha is, and I think um, Catholics would still utilize that, that section. It's, 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 a, it's a collection of books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that didn't meet the canon of our Protestant Bible. So there's about, I think, about eight different books in there. Um, 
I read those. I don't study them as God-inspired scripture, but I have read those because there's helpful historical information in there that helped me understand specifically, like, where did the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes come from? The different groups of Jews that show up in the, in the Gospels, where did they come from? That's answered in the book of Maccabees. So that's helpful to know, but it, it didn't meet the canon because there was some theological difference. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, how can we biblically explain healing not happening when we command sickness to leave in Jesus' name with full faith? Um, you've got, uh, I did a study once on all the people in the New Testament that didn't get healed. Actually, it was the whole Bible that didn't get healed. There was tons. Um, like Paul, Paul says, you know, I've, I've cried out to God over and over to remove this thorn in my flesh and he wouldn't do it. Whether that was a physical healing or not, we don't know. Uh, there's, you know, that, that healing at the pool in Bethsaida where Jesus only healed one person, but everyone else didn't get healed. And there, there's, there's so many different healings. But what my, my two cents would be just as a word of caution that it says God is our healer. And in, a, in Exodus, he says he is the healer. So when someone doesn't get healed, it does not mean that they have sinned or you have screwed up. Our job is to continue to lay hands on the sick and pray for the sick. One of my, one of my great friends, J.D., he's the guy that killed Cookie Dough, the mountain goat. He's now on staff with us. Uh, he went on an outreach to Japan, and every single people, person they prayed for for two months, hundreds, every single person got healed. For two months, there was just this boom, anointing on the outreach. Everybody got healed. And what happens in Acts? Acts, what happens in Acts happens today. And why I say that is because it's after Jesus died and was resurrected. It's after he ascended into heaven, and it's after the Holy Spirit has come to, uh, on earth. So we're living in the same time period as the book of Acts. So there's a story in the book of Acts where somebody's sick, and so uh, they, they pray over a handkerchief and send it, and then that person touches the handkerchief and gets healed. So Jesus, or um, JD, on this outreach, he gets word that his dad has a slipped disc in his back and is in is in. Uh, He's, uh, we're stuck in a bed, bed-ridden, bed, bed arrest, whatever. Um, so he's, what? So there's like a better word for it, stuck in a bed. Um, so he's stuck in a bed in Chicago. JD's leading an outreach team in Japan. And so they get one of those circle pads that chicks wipe stuff off with. Um, no, it's not mascara. You're way off. It's a circle pad. Face, it's a circle, not moisturizer. Guys, stop talking. It's a circle, not a pad. It's like a circle thing. That thing. They've got a circle thing. And as an outreach team, as an outreach team, they pray over this circle makeup removing thing. What? Cotton rounds. They have a cotton round. No, it's not a ball. No, no, no. It's not a ball. It's, it's a circle. It's the flat circle. All right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shut up! Okay. We've got... I've only got 28 seconds, so shut up. They pray over a cotton round. And they mail this cotton round to Chicago from Japan and say, we've prayed over healing over this cotton round. Put it on your back. 
And so my, my JD's dad, uh, JD's dad takes out, reads the letter, and he puts it on his back. And he said, all of a sudden, it just his back got too hot to touch. And he calls his wife, or being like, touch my back. And his, his wife couldn't touch his back because it was burning hot. And the, the disc had just popped right in. And so he go, yeah. He goes to the doctor, it's all sweet. But it goes to show what happens in Acts still happens today. Like everything in there still happens today. It's so cool. So, um, but JD, since why I bring up that story is there's a season where every single person he prayed for got healed. And then they come back from Japan and he says, it's pretty hit or miss. He, go, he still prays for everybody. If he hears someone cough, he goes and prays for him. And he says, it's about one in 10 that people get healed. But then there's other seasons where everyone gets healed or no one gets healed. But he said, that's not up to him. His job is to pray for the sick. And it's the healer that's going to heal. Uh, but, yeah, it's not, it's not up to us. Uh, we just pray for the sick, and God does his part. 